Okay, so I am joined by OUI staff writer Colin Kennedy. Colin, what's going on, man? Oh, we're going to have some fun today, RJ. We've got a lot to talk about on that thing, so let's get on into this thing. All right, uh, yeah, let's let's go back over giving up 31 points in one half of football and uh, 38 points in three quarters and nary a takeaway to show for it. Because, like, that's more the story for me than the 38 points. Like, But, like, what was your biggest takeaway from the loss to Kansas State? Yeah, I think there were a few, obviously. I think to start, I was honestly impressed with what they did out of the gate, right? I mean, you have to look at this game and see that lead that they built in the first half and think to yourself, okay, that's what you would want. I, I felt like, though, Oklahoma, after that lead was built, just expected Kansas State to – basically kiss the ring and say, oh, well, we're going to have to, I guess, just roll over and allow the centers to stomp all over us. But when that didn't happen, I was pretty stunned with how lackluster the effort was to get back on track from the Oklahoma players and staff. Like it just didn't seem like they attempted any sort of surge as soon as Kansas state came out of the second half gate and punched them in the mouth. Like there was just no reaction and as a result, you saw Kansas State build a lead in its own right that Oklahoma just had to stare at as it continued to grow. And I think once Kansas State solidified that three-point lead with the 50-yard field goal, you just felt like, all right, this one's over. I mean, it doesn't matter what Oklahoma does in this standpoint. It's it's a game that got away from them, and that's exactly what it turned out to be. Now, as far as Specific takeaways in the game, I think, number one, for me, the offensive line, people are obviously going hard at them, and for obvious reasons. I felt like, though, what they accomplished in the run game was pretty solid, and, I mean, we talked about it on a couple of different shows or whatever, that the run game itself between the running backs and the offensive line was pretty solid. It's just I was stunned how quick they were to get away from it, especially in the fourth quarter. I mean, they didn't give those young running backs any time at all to leave their mark in the game. And then you saw a red shirt freshman and Spencer Rattle with all the weight on his shoulders. And it just, just didn't work out. And I don't think you should be shocked by that outcome. But at the same time, I am very shocked by which other one of my takeaways, how people were so quick to kind of put some blame on Spencer Rattle or start to at least question his name a little bit, because yes, they got through three interceptions, but RJ, I've been kind of mentioning it as we go about this week. If you really look at these turnovers, it's not necessarily on him. The guy had a really good stat line. It's just these three interceptions, when you look at them by a case-to-case basis, one was tipped up in the air by his receiver and caught by the Kansas State defender. The other one was actually a pretty decent decision to go one-on-one with Marvin Mims. Just Kansas State's defensive back made a great play on the football. And the last one was obviously just a poor throw, but that's where, to me, the greatest concern was as the game went on, Spencer Rattler – just kind of sputtered with this offense. And yes, he heard footsteps constantly from a struggling offensive line and pass protection specifically. He didn't have the run game help as the offensive coordinator and Lincoln Riley kind of strayed away from it. But at the end of the day, this, this young quarterback was put in the bright spot of a game winning opportunity and he just didn't get the job done. And and here we are today talking about how many questions are on this Oklahoma football team as they get ready for Iowa state. A couple of things point out. One, the reason that we are going hard, and by we I mean this this group of us that are going, what the hell is going on with this offensive line, 
is because it is the strength of this football team, period. Mm -hmm. There's no discussion about that. You return five starters on that offensive line, and including Eric Swenson in there is what you have to do because he got the start for the first half of the season, and then you needed to move R.J. Proctor over there. But the thought was Bray Walker, Stacey Wilkins, Daryl Simpson is are going to be your tackles of the future, and none of those guys have been able to take that job to say nothing of Michael Thompson, who had moved from one side to another and couldn't find a home. And then we're talking about Creed Humphrey, who somehow is escaping blame for this, but I watched the man get beat up in the middle of the field playing center. And it's like, that's, that was the thing we expected with Bravian Roy, who was 400 pounds. It's the thing that we saw with Tyler Shelvin, who's 350 pounds. It was not what I was expecting for a Kansas State defensive tackle to do to Creed Humphrey. Then you add to that, Khalid Duke and Wyatt Hubert were just eating. Eric Swenson and Adrian Ely, for that matter. So that's one reason as to why we're going at them. The other one is they did try to run the ball. Like, there are 35 rush attempts in this game for 130 yards. You know, like, nobody got any push. And you got 13 carries for Seth McGowan. You got 13 carries for TJ Pledger. Seth McGowan put the ball on the floor. And after putting the ball on the floor, he's still your best rusher at just over five yards per carry. I'm glad that Seth McGowan is having himself a first a good couple of first games, but he's not supposed to be your bell cow back. That's supposed to be Marcus Major or TJ Pledger. And for his part, Pledger looked good, and he looked as if he had some understanding of what he needed to be doing. But that backfield, including Rattler, did not inspire confidence in the second half. And more than that, it has been so long since I looked at an Oklahoma football team with an opportunity to go win the game on a final drive, feel as if they don't have it to go. Like, that's the other thing that just we're going to have to wait for Rattler to develop. And it's not something that OU fans have had to wait for since 2015. You know, but even in 2016, when OU starts the season one and two, you don't feel like Baker Mayfield is a bad quarterback. Matter of fact, he ends up being a Heisman finalist that year along with D.D. Westbrook, and they win a Sugar Bowl against Auburn. But, you know, there's there's aspects to that. But more than that, like, we're talking about a one-score game, and not even a one-score game, a field goal game. And I just was thinking about this as you were speaking. The last three regular season games that Oklahoma has lost, it is lost by a combined 16 points, right? Three against Texas. Dickard the kicker, 48-45, right? Last year, 48-41, Kansas State. And then this year, 38-35, Kansas State. All games in which they scored a ton of points. They also gave up a ton of points. So I look at the defense as much as we've been looking at the defense basically since 2012. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I found to be interesting was laid on me by a friend is since Grinch has come over to Oklahoma, they played 16 games. They've got 12 takeaways in those 16 games. That same amount of time, the offense has given the ball away 24 times. And you look at what the defense is going to have to do to reach 26 takeaways in a season, which is what Grinch wants this year, you got to get 25 in eight games. You got to get better than three turnovers per game. And that sounds like a lot. But then you look at what Oklahoma's offense did against Kansas State. It was three turnovers. And if you get even one, if you close that margin to two, 
and you, you probably win the football game if you're OU, and we're talking about OU escaping a loss as opposed to suffering a loss. So I think there's lots of things to, to pick on there, but I think if you wanted to harp on Rattler, the offensive line, the running backs, or the defense itself, I'm not going to say that you can't. Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest issue here is that there are a multitude of things you could point at after this game and say, yikes, that's not good. But at the same time, I mean, that's what's to come with this kind of a season. I mean, it's kind of like I mentioned on the college football deal to Trey Scott. Anyone who didn't expect some growing pains from this team or Spencer Rattler specifically just wasn't facing reality at its face value. I mean, I also hold the take that I still feel like we have undervalued how much Kenneth Murray meant to this football team. Yes, they did not generate those takeaways that you mentioned, but I also have a hard time believing that Kenneth Murray would not have at least stopped or said something to prevent this outcome. And, and so I, I look at this game and I can obviously see why a lot of people are going to smash that panic button. And it is justifiably so. I mean, Oklahoma was about to head into a gauntlet that you may or may not have included Kansas State in. My biggest issue here is where was all of this before then? I feel like a lot of people weren't necessarily examining some of the issues that this squad had going into the season, and maybe some of us were culprits of that. I felt like, though, we really had to take this team for what it is. And as I mentioned to the guys at GoPowerCat.com or whoever else, this is very much still a gap year for OU. And this was probably the first opportunity for us to see that in its reality. I, I expect not necessarily more of the same moving forward, but look, man, this is going to be a really tough season for OU. And it, it only gets more difficult as they get ready to face Iowa state, Texas, TCU and the like. I actually want to talk a little bit about Texas and Texas Christian uh, a little bit later on because that's a, that's a tremendously big game, even for OU. I'll explain that in a little bit. But looking ahead to Iowa State, it's already clear that they want this game. And I'm thinking about this from the standpoint of hunting versus hunted. Like, you ask any coach in America, they want to be the underdog. They like chasing. They like hunting. Everybody likes hunting. Nobody likes running away from people that are trying to kill them. Iowa State has to feel good about itself because it felt like they found their offense against uh, Texas Christian, which is not a difficult thing to do, to find your offense against Gary Patterson in that 4-2-5, where you see Garrett Wallow and you see these players that you know are going to play NFL football. Then you add to that, Brees Hall has been a tremendous player. The way that I was talking about Deuce Vaughn the first six weeks, I say first six weeks, the last six weeks, is the way he was talking about Brees Hall last year because, you know, that 2019 class, the number one player in the state of Kansas is Marcus Hicks, who's on the shelf at Oklahoma and I think is going to be a game changer once he gets healthy to play. The number two player was Brees Hall, and he ends up at a place where they know how to turn out tailbacks. And Brees Hall is already putting together a better career than David Montgomery, and most people will tell you David Montgomery, hell of a running back at Iowa State, hell of a running back for the Chicago Bears. So outside of Brock Purdy and – Brees Hall, who are you going to watch for for Iowa State? Uh, Jaquan Bailey. I am so excited about this matchup, RJ. And let me tell you why. 
I witnessed Jaquan Bailey in the first week of the season as Iowa State collapsed in that opening loss to Louisiana. Hurdle a grown man in pass rush. Like, if you don't process that with your brain, let me explain a little bit more in depth, people at home. This man was rushing the quarterback full speed and jumped over a running back nonchalantly while going after the guy with the football. I don't think that that actually is like something that normally happens ever. I have never seen that before in my life. But he did it, and he did it with ease. And then he went on in the game against TCU to absolutely eat their lunch. I mean, TCU's offensive tackles, it's clear that they're a problem right now. Austin Myers, specifically at left, did not have a great football game. But I would also say a lot of that had to do with the fact that Jaquan Bailey might just be the best defensive end in the Big 12. He is a guy going into this game. I can't wait to see how he matches up with those offensive tackles that we mentioned. Adrian Ely, probably one of the guys you might feel a little bit more comfortable with at this stage on that Oklahoma offensive line, because I think the interior got a little bit embarrassing. Obviously, the left tackle spot is weak, but whether he matches up with Ely or the left tackle position, whoever it might be, he's going to have the advantage. He is the better play. And I need to see how Oklahoma tries to mask him in protection. Does it mean they have to utilize the running backs or tight ends? Because it's clear to me you're not going to win on that guy one-on-one. Jaquan Bailey is a guy that Oklahoma fans need to be very concerned about going into this game because I have a very strong indication he's going to leave his impact on the outing. And if he does so, it's going to be hard for Oklahoma's offense to generate anything, especially in the passing game with a retro freshman QB who heard plenty of footsteps and let it be evident. Jaquan Bailey is one of those players that feels like he's been here for 10 years, you know, kind of like Sam Adler, right? And and there's a number of players across the league that feel like they've been playing for that long because they they really have. They were early contributors as freshmen, and then they just never gave up jobs. I mean, uh, along with guys like Mike Rose, right? Uh, Greg uh, Aysworth, excuse me. Like, they just feel like, They've been there forever, and Jaquan Bailey having three and a half sacks, I don't give a damn who he's playing against. You, you got three and a half sacks in a football game. You're a player, and not just, right? not just a player, but like, yo, Marcus Major, uh, Seth McGowan, TJ Pledger, you can't just dive at this dude's knees, all right? Because that's exactly the kind of image you're talking about when Jaquan Bailey's just going to jump over. You're going to make it easy. That's one, that, that bugged me the most is when you would ask the running backs to block, none of them had hands to go and throw a chest at, right? They were all trying to just roll into somebody's knees, and I'm looking for you to do that because that's easy. All I got to do is step over you. That's that's fine. You don't get to do that with Jaquan Bailey, and certainly as we've been hitting on all year and we will probably could hit on for the rest of the year, left tackle's a problem because if I am John Haycock, yo, Jaquan, that left side of their line, that's yours. Eat. E homie, that's all you, right? We we gonna we gonna drop we gonna drop eight. We're gonna play our zone. We're gonna tackle people, put them on the ground, and you you just go beat the hell out of that left tackle, okay? Because it's clear that they're not going to be able to block you, and you're going to probably vault into the NFL off of this tape because everybody knows what Lincoln Riley's offense is supposed to do. Which is the other thing that I find to be interesting about where we're headed for OU football offensively, like. A couple years ago, Barry Trammell asked Lincoln Riley at Big 12 Media Days with Baker being gone and bringing in Jalen, 
or excuse me, Kyler bring it, being gone and bringing in Jalen. Do you expect the offense to take a dip to which Riley adjusted his tie, kind of grunted and said, we don't expect the offense to take a dip. And it didn't, right? For the most part, like they put up 44 points a game, but is it the 47, 48 that they had been? No. This might be the first year for which Oklahoma doesn't average 40 points per game, which means the defense has to actually do something other than exist, right? And if you choose to try to exist against Matt Campbell and Brock Purdy and Brees Hall, but move to the point, Charlie Kohler, you're dead. Like, that was the thing that I was most interested to see against Texas Christian is what does the All-American do against Texas Christian? And turns out quite a whole hell of a lot, right? Charlie Kohler, a, yeah. a Norman native, is going, yeah, you guys like Austin Stogner. Cool. I'm actually an All-American. And I'm, I got to match up against Brian Asamoah or Deshaun White or Buki. I plan to go for eight and 120 with four tutties, okay? Like, that's, that's how it feels right now because I don't see what answer does Oklahoma have for Charlie Kohler. I mean, I would ask you, do you bracket the man? Do you ask Buki to match up one-on-one? You can't ask Pat Fields to take over that because – DeLaron Turner-Yell is not a free safety. Like, you just don't have the option of throwing Justin Harrington into this situation, which would have meant the world, right? That's why having a 6'3", 215-pound safety is important because you can match up against 6'4", 230 at the tight end position in a way that, quite honestly, Buki just cannot. Or maybe he can because, you know, against Pro Wells last year, makes play. And maybe that's the kind of player that you're going to need him to be. But my God, dude, if I'm looking at this from a matchup standpoint, Brock, if you got man coverage with Charlie Kohler, check to it, right? I don't care if we're in a running play. Check to it. Throw that man the football. Hey, I'm right there with you. And it's actually something I'm glad that you bring up because Charlie Kohler, you mentioned how do you handle this guy? Well, you don't, not only from a pure matchup standpoint in the fact that there is no one in your defensive back group or linebacking core that can line up with him one-on-one and feel good about themselves, but you also can't match up with this guy because of who's around him. Like, Iowa State this year, to me, is a little bit down at the receiver position. You're used to them having like an Alan Lazard or Hakeem Butler on the perimeter, right? And I don't know that they have that presence right now. I really like Xavier Hutchinson, the Juco guy at wide receiver, and Tariq Milton is a guy going into this year I thought was going to have a pretty strong season. But the constant for Iowa State and what allows them to capitalize on Charlie Kolar so often are the other tight ends on this roster. Of their three best, there isn't a guy that they run out there that is less than six foot six. 250 pounds. Think about that for a second. I want to name these three specifically to you, RJ, because OU fans need to be aware of just how scary this task is for OU. You've got Kohler at 6'6", 257. That's well known. He has torched Oklahoma in the past, obviously. Dylan Sainer at 6'7", 272, and Chase Allen at 6'7", 240, and more, now that he's actually put on some additional weight, he's probably sitting around 250, 260, all three of those guys can be on the field at the exact same time, and Iowa State will not skip a beat offensively. And that, to me, is what's most concerning for OU, even when you mentioned just one of them, like Kolar. You can't put all of your focus on just one guy because they can have two or three of them at the same time. And how do you match up with one six foot six, 250-plus pounder when there's another one on the field? 
I have no idea. I don't think that you can, and I think Oklahoma's aware of that. So going into this matchup, we talk about OU's offense versus Jaquan Bailey. OU's defense versus this crew of tight ends highlighted by Charlie Kolar is what I'm most excited to witness, and I, I don't know that Oklahoma's equipped to truly handle them if all three are used properly. They used that three tight end set on the failed two-point conversion that, if successful, would have won them the game in Norman mm-hmm. last year. And that was Brock Purdy's fault. Like, he just made the wrong read. If he threw it to, I believe it was Chase Allen, who was actually open, that's a different ball game, right? He, he tried to force it into a slot where Parnell Motley happened to be, which is also important because there is no Parnell Motley here, right? There is no Kenneth Murray here, which is another way of saying you got to depend on somebody else to make that fill, and you got to depend on somebody else to make that play uh, in the secondary. Until last week, I thought that person was going to be Trey Brown, and it still might be. But watching how Deuce Vaughn was able to outrun the secondary, I mean, Trey, Trey Brown is a 4-2 guy, right? Uh, Pat Fields actually showing some wheels out there. He's not supposed to be that fast. Jaden Davis is, right? Buki is, and on it goes. But, like, I, I, I can draw up scheme to give this defense fits if I'm Iowa State. And if I can do it, Matt Campbell plans to do it. And they're going to be at home, and they're going to be on in their all-blacks, man. I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous. Did you see those things? They're so sweet. <laughs> they are slick, man. It, man, could you imagine, by the way, if this game was at full capacity, how electric Ames, Iowa will be on Saturday night? I mean, obviously there's going to be, what, 15K? Yep. With those black uniforms and the stakes at hand, woo, this thing's going to be a lot of fun. Man, you get to wear black at night. Man, Golly, Oklahoma's never going to wear black uniforms, and it sucks. I, I, I want a black uni. Um, all right, so around the Big 12, the, the game of the weekend for me is Texas Christian and Texas for a number of reasons, right? Not the least of which is Texas Christian beat Texas last year. Right, and then end up in the Big 12 championship game. But if you wanted to have some panache, you need at least one of them to walk in there unscathed. Right, last year that was Oklahoma, and I believe even the year before that it was Oklahoma. This year it's going to have to be Texas. And after what I saw defensively, giving up 56 to Texas Tech, a team that barely beat Houston Baptist, and Sam Ellinger looking rough against Keith Patterson's defense, I'm like, man. Damn it. And uh, is this game in Fort Worth? I can't remember. Is this game in Fort Worth or Austin? This year it is in Austin. Thank you. Thank you. Right? So they ought to win this game by two touchdowns on talent, but I can't call it, man. Like, I would love to be able to assume that Sam Ellinger could run Mike Yersich's offense to great effect. I also know that nobody wants to beat Texas the way that Gary Patterson wants to beat Texas. He loves nothing more than running it up on Texas whenever possible. And yet, I'm not going to pick him because Max Duggan is Max Duggan even when he's healthy, and he hasn't been here of late. And I think having Zach Evans back is the X factor here because, like, if Zach Evans is the dude that we know him to be from North Shore, you might be able to run the ball and play defense and win this football game. But... Do you think that that's enough? I mean, we uh, nobody's been higher on Texas Christian than you. Yeah, I've been the leader of the bandwagon, haven't I? And honestly, like, I, 
I feel pretty good about this team going into this game. I feel probably much better than I should, but at the same time, I still feel pretty good because this is why. I felt like TCU really should have won that game against Iowa State this past weekend because I don't know if you saw Duggan enter the game in the second half and basically look like Superman, but the dude enters the football game and goes 16 of 20 for 241 and three tutties in a half. And keep in mind, he's doing this with a terrible offensive line against a very good Iowa State defensive line. And he's also doing this with a whole bunch of new receivers. I thought Duggan was outstanding. I don't know why he didn't play the full game. I, I still question some decisions there, but at the same time, when I take into consideration, number one, what Duggan was able to accomplish, and number two, that TCU defense with, you mentioned Garrett Wallow, who's running around with his partner in D. Winters. That might be the best linebacker doing the Big 12 right now. They were so much fun to watch. Obviously, TCU has its stud safeties, who are the best duo, not only in Big 12, but maybe in the nation. And then for Tom Herman to come out and say something like, well, you know, Gary Patterson doesn't actually do too much. He just lets his guys run around. I must say, that is a bold move to criticize the best defensive mind of the conference ahead of this kind of matchup. I think TCU's got a shot here, man. Like, they have, obviously, a lot of talent on the offensive side of the ball at the skill position. The offensive line is a huge, huge question mark for me. Texas' defensive line has some studs. That's where the mismatch could come into effect. But at the same time, TCU has the guys to get this job done. And when I look at Texas... You mentioned it. Like, they were not that good or impressive in the game where they scored over 60 points. Like, there were a lot of weird special teams plays. The offense just didn't look all that great, and the defense got torched. I just think that this is a really intriguing matchup, one that, honestly, TCU has a much better shot at than maybe you would have perceived two or three weeks ago. I don't know if I'm going to pit TCU or Texas to win at this stage. I want to see who's actually going to play for each squad going into the game. But, I mean, Texas is an 11.5-point favorite, and I am almost smashing TCU to be a guaranteed cover because of all these factors considered. Yeah, man, I, I would be amazed if Texas gets to 28 points. I just don't, I don't see it. For that matter, I don't see Texas Christian getting to 28 points. Like, I, I see yeah. a defensive game, if for no other reason than the suspect offensive line at TCU. And Max Duggan might have to run for his life. But also because the Texas defense is not really that good. Or at least it's not as good as it should be. Now, I understand you got a new coordinator, but that time is coming past. You have Caden Stearns, right? You, you have Joseph Asai. Like, you – we don't even get to talk about Vernon Broughton, and that dude might end up being the best defensive player in this entire conference in just two years. You got guys, and you ought to be able to beat Texas Christian. That said, right, you, you did. You, you poked the bear, right? You poked the dude that has made, made the 4-2-5 a base defense for everybody. Everybody. Yep. Like, dude, two way like even Alex Grinch runs a version of that defense. The difference is – he uses a stand-up end rush linebacker where Gary Patterson does not, right? He likes two ends, he likes two tackles, he likes two linebackers, and he likes to call them that, right? He likes three safeties, he likes to call them that. We, we, we play with the terminology and we play with where these guys line up, but for the most part, he said, no, you've always needed three safeties. Because if you have three safeties, you have, number one, always an extra man in the box, 
and you're never going to get beat by that tight end slot receiver because that dude that I have trained can run with him. And I'm calling two different defenses the whole time. Three sometimes, right? I call a defense for the front six. I call a defense for one half of the field and a defense for the other half of the field. And he's constantly playing with what he thinks you're going to do and putting his guys in position to read and react. The, the thing that Texas has to re- depend on is the most Texas thing ever. You have to just say, our players are better than your players. That Josh Moore is that good. That Brendan Eagles is that good. I don't even see much of Tariq Black against Texas Tech. Didn't I, play. Yeah. So I'm like, what, what, what's that, right? And then is B. John Robinson going to be ready to go? Do you get Jake Smith back? I don't think you're going to get Jordan Whittington back, right? So, like, I could see this going either way. I'm with you. I, I think Tex, uh, Texas Christian is going to cover this game. Um, the other big game on the menu that I want to talk about was uh, Auburn and Georgia. And I kind of touched on this a little bit, but I want to talk about it from the standpoint of would we actually care if Georgia did not look suspect? You know, like, I watched, I watched a good chunk of Georgia-Arkansas, and I kept going, man, if Georgia does not have this defense, they might lose this game. You know, like, because Felipe Franks didn't yeah. look great. The offense looked like they had just learned the offense for Arkansas, and, you know, they playing with house money because we don't expect much from them. But they led that game 7-0, 7-2, 7-5, all while Dwan Mathis is getting terrorized by Barry Odom's defense and Bumper Pools out there doing the job. And, you know, you put Stetson Bennett in there who absolutely just ran the offense. Like, I think he was something like 21-29 for 2-11. It's decent. But it wasn't what JT Daniels ought to be able to do. And I run this by you. I look at Bo Nix the way I look at Jalen Hurts, which is to say he's your ceiling. If that dude turns out to be a Heisman candidate, Auburn can win a national championship. But that ain't who that dude is, right? That dude's a very good college quarterback. But I keep looking around going, man, if y'all had somebody that can actually go make a play, like routinely go make a play and and complete passes on third down when everybody knows you're passing on third down, Auburn's elite. And I, man, watching Kalen Newton at wide receiver, I'm going, Gus, what are we doing? Meanwhile, I'm going to watch Todd Munkin and say, are you actually going to let JT Daniels go out there and cook or are you going to let Kenny McIntosh and James Cook do your work? How do you feel about this game? I I don't feel great. <laughs> I, I'll be honest with you. This one could be, if you're not a fan of defensive football, I would look at other channels because I think obviously with JT Daniels, if he has the opportunity to start and it sounds like he will, I'm still expecting him to have some sort of learning curve in this game, especially when he's facing an Auburn defensive coordinator and Kevin Steele who is very good at exposing your weaknesses. I don't know right now that Georgia is the team that it's going to be two, three, four, five weeks from now. But at the same time, if any team can make sure that it slips up, it's going to be Auburn. I, I look at this game and I'm I'm with you. I think if Bo Nix can just be above average, Auburn might have a wide advantage here, specifically on offense. And you at least feel good if you're in a situation where you have to bet on the Tiger defense. I think in the end, I, I would expect Georgia at home to have the advantage here. And I think if JT Daniels can settle in quickly, then that gives them a quarterback advantage, which also means a lot. But at the same time, 
if it's not evident and Auburn has the ability to lean on that defensive unit and maybe lean on a Bo Nix who just has has to basically be a game manager on the road, the Tigers can make this thing really interesting, not from a pure offensive standpoint and light at the scoreboard. This could be a close game going into the fourth, and it could easily be one that Auburn comes out on top. I'm going to be channel surfing. I know it. I'm going to watch Oklahoma and Iowa State on ABC. I'm going to watch Auburn and Georgia on ESPN. Then hopefully get to talk a little bit about both on, on ESPN later that night. But we'll see because, like, Major League Baseball is going on, which is what I actually wanted to talk with you about. Who's going to win the World Series if the Dodgers don't win the World Series? Man, it's tough, dude. I, You know, the Dodgers are kind of the, the heavy favorite, right? But I – I think the Braves are pretty sneaky this year. I like the amount of talent on that roster. And I mean, like the Yankees, if they can get all that talent on the same page, who knows? But here's the thing, like the Dodgers are just so loaded, right? I I think LA has been kind of the easy pick for so long. And obviously this is a college football podcast, so I don't want to harp on it too much. But if you aren't rolling Dodgers, I look at maybe like the Braves in the National League. And maybe like the the Yankees or some of those other well-hitting ball clubs, because yes, pitching is a big deal in the postseason. But in this day and age, where offense is so hard to generate, maybe look at a team like the Yanks to kind of get them through the postseason. It's a sexy pick. You 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 you, you knock Shane Bieber out of the game, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, like he's he's he was serving up grapefruits. It was unlike him in that game, and. I'm just going to go ahead and say go Padres, right? Because, like, that would be fun. <laughs> That'd be fun. They are a fun team. They're, I mean, I like Manny at third. I like Fernando Tatis at short. I mean, those those are fun guys. Um, yes. Yes, we have range here on the podcast. Uh, that is Colin Kennedy. Follow him on Twitter at CKennedy247. That is CKennedy247. I have deleted my Twitter account. Uh Colin, man, thanks so much as ever. It's always fun, man. Let's do it again soon. Right on, buddy.